Welcome, everybody. Uh, we're in our second part of our study of First Peter. And if you want to follow along on the handout, there's copies on the table here. Otherwise, it's on our website at rockofages-payson.com. Today, the second handout, it says page three. That's where we'll begin. If we have time, we'll come back, because uh, we didn't finish the, the extra notes that came with handout one. If we've got time, we'll look at that. Otherwise, we'll just keep going. And then we got some notes on uh, pages three and four of handout two. This covers 1 Peter 1, verses 1 to 12. And as I mentioned, I'm recording it. Uh, the people listening to the recording can't see it, but the room is just packed. It's just so full of people out there. <laughs> see, you can hear them. Well, at least, it, at least half the tables are at least half full, so out of the eight tables or so. And they can hear you if you speak up so that the rest of the group can hear. The microphone will also pick it up. All right, so we said our opening prayer. We're going to dig into 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, the page 3 there, it says, Scattered, Sanctified, Sprinkled. This opening address contains the theme of Peter's letter. God's scattered chosen people are only temporary residents. Uh, that's how one translation, the EHV, puts that word there. Sojourning, that's another word some translations use. Sojourning on the path from cross to crown. So we're going to read through this letter. We're going to see this, is, this opening address basically fleshes out what's going to be mentioned throughout the letter. The fact that God's people are, yes, they're scattered, but God has a plan for them. And he's going to bless them. And so they must go through the trials, the, the griefs of this world. And eventually, carrying their cross, they'll reach the, the goal of their faith, to join with Christ in glory. Let's read 1 Peter 1, 1-2. And if someone wants to read that, read that for the group, they can. Okay. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Thanks, Bill. So there we have the, the opening address, verse 1 and 2. You probably noticed already, just, just from this short reading, the style of writing is very different from our last study when we, when we read through Paul's letter. Peter is going to just throw in a lot of pictures and throw in a lot of descriptive words, sandwich them all together. Some people note that the Greek of Peter's letter at least his first letter is too fancy. It's too formal. And it couldn't have been Peter some question because it's too fancy. And I added a little footnote on our last study. But if you look at the end of the letter, it actually says he wrote with the help of Sylvanius or Silas. So he's, he's not the one that's writing this down. And that's kind of interesting because when you think about the Gospel of Mark, attributed to John Mark, the missionary companion of the Apostle Paul, Tradition states that John Mark wrote what Peter dictated to him. So perhaps Peter, as a fisherman, just wasn't that capable of sitting down and writing a long, lengthy letter, and he needed people to write down for him, perhaps. We don't know, uh, but that does explain why this letter has the, the particular grammar and language that it does. Remember, we have, as we'll see in this letter, human authors but they're carried along as the, the Holy Spirit really gives them the words. 
All right. So explain how Peter's opening address implies his recipients are enduring trials and yet destined for glory. Let's take a look at those opening two verses. How do you see it implied that both there's going to be trials, but the, the destination, the plan is for glory? Yeah. Trials, um, he mentions that they're, they're just temporary and they're scattered throughout several different provinces or countries. Sure. Yeah, as you read further on in chapter 1, you'll see these are temporary trials, and these are people who are <clears throat> scattered. So they're not together like, uh, you know, the triumphant people of David's in the city of Jerusalem. They've, they've been scattered. So that, that kind of brings us to the idea that life isn't going to be perfectly easy and unified. They're scattering. They're called, um, if you look at this translation in the NIV, exiles. So an exile is someone who's not where they belong. They're not at their home. Okay, so yeah, what about the fact that they're destined for glory? Yeah, sprinkled with his blood. So God's given them the splattering of his blood. That, that picture goes back to the, the tabernacle when they would sprinkle blood on the, the atonement cover of the ark. And that was on the great day of atonement. That sprinkling of the blood would be the, the picture, the, the taking away of the sins because it was covered by blood. But we're, we're covered, Peter says, by the blood of Christ. Other things in the, just this initial address that show us there's something great in store for these scattered exiles. They have separation from each other for a while. Okay. I mean, if you're, huh? I mean, if you're scattered, then you're, you're not, probably not in real close contact with one congregation to another. Just being scattered implies there's, there's, there's got to be a gathering for these exiles. Look at the title that Peter has for them. God's elect, right? So they're, they're called God's elect at the very start of this letter. And then as you read on, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father. So they're elect, they're chosen. doesn't matter if they're scattered. doesn't matter if they're spread out. And they're not in their, their, so to speak, home as God's people. God has chosen them. And God, by his foreknowledge, which we, we read in our Ephesians study, it's an eternal foreknowledge, right? This eternal choosing. God has an eternal plan for them. God knows where they're headed. And God has chosen them. So right away, Peter's kind of helping them to see, all right, fellow exiles, scattered believers, who are chosen by God, who God has a great plan for, Let's talk about what it means to be sprinkled by the blood of Christ. And then, of course, you have the blessing, right? Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Or some translations say, grace and peace be yours multiplied. Not just a typical greeting, but undeserved love from God. The grace of Christ. Peace. Peace with your, as he says there, God the Father. The work of the Spirit and Jesus Christ, the Son. 
So let's uh, continue on the number one there. Explain how all believers everywhere face the same type of journey today. Are we exiles? Yeah. I think of that, that hymn, Heaven is my home. Earth is but a desert dreary. I'm a stranger here. Heaven is my home. We are supposed to view ourselves that way, just, just like all of God's people, not just the scattered people throughout ancient Asia Minor, which is Turkey, or people like Abraham who were you know, wandering about, you know, or Moses, I'm a stranger in a strange land. But all God's people are exiles. In what sense are we exiles? Yeah, this world is temporary. This life is temporary. This home that we have here is, is temporary. And we are waiting for the promised land, far greater than entering the promised land of Canaan, but what that really foreshadowed, that God's going to bring his people through the wilderness of this life and this land, and he's going to bring us to the promised home. I'm not saying the, the events of ancient Israel were allegory. Those were real events. But they were pictures showing the people what God does for them. He carries them through the desert, through the wilderness, to a great promised place. And still, that, that's us. We are able to call ourselves exiles, sojourners. We should. Any further thoughts up to that point? Comments? All right, let's go to number two there. James also addressed God's people as scattered. So James 1.1, 1, 1, he talks about the scattered people of God. Uh, that was the brother of Jesus, James, not one of the, the 12 James that wrote the, the letter that we have. But he was a pillar in the church. He, he was centered in Jerusalem with his work. And like Peter, he would reach out to the scattered believers. It didn't take long for this scattering to occur. Recall from the previous notes that Peter likely wrote this letter between 63 to 68 AD. So we have roughly 30 years after the, the day of Pentecost and Christ is now ascended and the church is starting to spread. 30 years in the, the history of the church really isn't that long when you picture it, right? I mean, this congregation is 40 years plus old already. So 30 years can just go by in a blink of an eye. This was very early in the history of the Christian church. Nonetheless, believers were already spread throughout Asia Minor. Let's review Bible history. What are some other times in history of God's church that his people were scattered by sin or persecution and needed to be gathered again? Okay. Yeah, Paul even warns that they, they're... Their bodies were strewn over the wilderness and they needed to have a shepherd as they were wandering in the wilderness. They were definitely scattered. They needed to be gathered to the place God promised. So there's that picture. Yeah. Jeff and I have just been reading Nehemiah and um, how Azerus allowed uh, Nehemiah to come back and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And yeah. They were scattered then. Significant event in the history of God's people. They, the northern kingdom had already been scattered uh, because of the Assyrians, but 586, Jerusalem, Judea, the people were, were scattered, brought into exile in Babylon. And you have the roughly 70-year period where they're, they're exiles and they're not even allowed to return. Yeah. Um, 
much more recently, just the history of our synod, when you read um, the first German pastor that came over to America, um, that it was because there were all these German immigrants scattered all over the Midwest and there were no pastors to shepherd them. But sure. So these German missionary societies sent pastors over to gather the flocks. Kind of a reflection of that. A lot of the the spread of our church body happened because there were scattered believers and someone said, well, there was a missionary society in Europe, a German missionary society that said, we need to send pastors over there to, to gather the flock, to encourage, to build up. Yep. And of course, um, I don't know if we could call them the people of God, but think of that big scattering when Noah's family ended up only a few generations later building the Tower of Babel and got scattered because of their defiant sin against God. Uh, think of all the, the scattering that has taken place because of the persecution in the, the New Testament church. Uh, so picture that, right? Uh, the stoning of Stephen, it says there was a great persecution that broke out against the church. Right. So <clears throat> the fall into sin caused Adam and Eve to lose paradise and their offspring were divided into the camps of either those who were, as the prophecy says, of the devil or of God, uh, the daughters of Eve and the offspring of Satan. And there was a scattering, a blending, a mixing in the world. Where are God's people? Yep. Okay. Can you summarize some of the New Testament events that scattered the church and how God gathered them into his kingdom? So let's, let's bring it now, narrow it down to Peter's era. The last 30 years before Peter writes this letter, how did these Christians in Galatia end up where they are? How did we get believers in Bithia, uh, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, Galatia, Pontus? Peter's writing to them. How did they get there? Yeah, a lot of them were reached by Paul. Um, Paul didn't end up going to the, the northern regions. Uh, if you look, um, Pontius is north along the Black Sea. He tried to go there, but the Spirit uh, directed him to go to uh, Macedonia. But still, Paul originally reached Galatia, which some people think is along, was along the coast, ancient Galatia, but really seems likely it was the, the highlands also in the central region. So Galatia was reached by Paul, uh, some of these areas. Also, <clears throat> before Paul, so take about 10, 13 years before Paul would have gone there, you would have had what it says in Acts, there was a great scattering of believers, right? And wherever the believers went, what would they do? Share the gospel, yeah. Uh, so it's kind of like when you, you, know, you take a dandelion and you blow the seeds um, the devil tried to snuff out the church, but what happened in the early church is that persecution caused these scattered believers to be spread everywhere. Some of them would have been Jews, uh, so they would have left their home because they realized, oh, this well, Paul was part of it too then, wasn't he? This man named Paul is going to arrest us if we don't move somewhere else. So the believers, the Jewish believers, had to spread out because they were being persecuted, but also they were reaching the the, the Gentiles, the pagans at that point already. And then comes Paul, the missionary to the Gentiles. So this region had been reached for the last 20 years with the gospel at least, if not longer than that. So these scattered believers have developed house churches, congregations that Peter's able to write to. 
And it seems likely they were served by Paul already. And Paul had written letters to, uh, for example, Paul's letter to the Galatians predates Peter's letter by about 10 years. So these were served already by Paul as uh, established church centers. Okay. All right, so that sets our, our context, who's Peter's, who Peter is writing to. Uh, if you look on the notes on the left-hand side, you know where are these places? It's really modern-day Turkey. And I listed for you the, the location. It really it goes full, full circle across what we would, would consider modern-day Turkey. And just up to the Black Sea, uh, but the, the southern shore of the Black Sea, or the northern part of Turkey. So how is the grace of God presented in these verses? There are several ways we can find God's grace, just in 1 Peter 1, uh, 1 and 2. Yeah, God's choosing. That has to be grace, right? That God would choose sinners. So you are the elect, the chosen. There's the grace of God right away at the very start. Not, oh, God's um, you know, special people because they did extra hard work, or special because they're a certain ethnicity or lived in the right place, but by grace they're chosen. Yeah. But by his foreknowledge. Yeah. So that, that's comforting. God's foreknowledge really also is his grace because he knew we'd be sinners and yet he still had a plan to save us. So God's foreknowledge emphasizes grace as well. My Bible says sanctifying work of the Spirit. Yeah, so even though God chose us, we still needed him to bring us to faith. The Spirit sanctifies uh, we saw quite often in Paul's letter to the Thessalonians how the Spirit, through the gospel, brought us to faith. Yep. And of course, the the greeting, grace and peace be yours in abundance. It may be not as obvious to us, but the fact that someone like Peter can call himself an apostle of Jesus Christ. Because we know who Peter is. The, the man who famously denied his Lord, and yet he's serving as an apostle. So just... Tons of grace found in the, the opening part of this letter. Grace for us, because uh, we too can identify as being the scattered people of God and yet part of God's plan. Well, and the reinstatement of Peter is graceful. You know, instead of being condemned for his denial, to just reinstate him. Yeah, so one, forgiven, and two, Jesus tells him three times, feed my lambs, right? Do you love me? Feed my sheep. So he is he is not only forgiven, but he's still an apostle. Not quite as, maybe we might argue, not quite as bad as Paul going around killing Christians, but still. Peter, Peter if anybody, certainly had disqualified himself. All right. Um, if you look at these verses, way at the bottom of my note section, I put, the Holy Trinity is one God, three persons, Find the Trinity in the opening address. And what role does each person of the Trinity have in our salvation? So now we're going to get behind because I'm getting sidetracked in my little notes. <laughs> it's the foreknowledge of the Father, the yep. sanctifying work of the Spirit, 
Yeah, so you have the, the knowledge of the Father or his plan of salvation, the, the work sanctifying of the Spirit and the blood of the Son all mentioned there. It's almost too easy to, to do that yeah. exercise because we actually have, other than Son, the usual titles, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all are right here. It's kind of a fun game to go through Scripture and pick out the Trinity. <laughs> right, and it, it's found very sometimes clearly, sometimes it's alluded to, but it's always there. Um, the... The writers in the New Testament, the evangelists, the apostles, taught about a triune God. And also you can do the same thing in the Old Testament too. But here it's you have the, the titles that the New Testament church has become accustomed to with Jesus Christ. Although like to the Jehovah Witnesses, this wouldn't help because it only tells the work of each person. It doesn't actually say they're one God. Right, so they would still pick it apart, yep. Yep. So you can identify <clears throat> the three persons, but then you have to also recognize, as it talks about these three persons, they're doing what only God can do, right? Only God can be our Savior. Only God can be the one who sanctifies. Only God can be the one who sprinkles us and makes us clean by his blood. So that's the way that you can kind of see the divinity, is they, they're doing the work of God, carrying out our salvation. But they would still, yeah, you can't argue with them. <laughs> they, they have so many... Okay. That was your last visit. Was that your last visit with them? Um, no, but that was the last time I got somebody to say and explain better how they believe. Sure. Well, I find the issue often with working with the Jehovah's Witnesses, the person of Jesus is the crucial issue. You know, what kind of a savior do we have? And what we'll see here is Peter often gets to, you know, give God the glory, just as the son when he walked the earth said, I came to glorify my father. Uh, but that's not denying the divinity of Christ. It's That shows all the more the awesomeness of the son's humility and his purpose is not self-glorification. It's within the Trinity. Don't they believe that Jesus is an archangel like Sure, yeah, he's relegated to position of an angel. See, I don't even need my side notes. We can get tracked, sidetracked all we want, right? <laughs> Yeah, no, that's all pertinent to what we're looking at here because we just found the Trinity in this opening, just two verses. So, all right, my goal is to try to cover part one so that we don't get behind when I start doing a sermon series on this. So, let's jump to our living hope. That's the next section here. So, it's kind of like you're coming to a buffet and you're like, ooh, I want this, and you just keep taking your own stuff. And I say, nope, you got to have some of this too, right? So we have a healthy, balanced, full-course meal here. Our living hope. If you define hope as an expectation of what good things will come in the future, then what do most people appear to put their hope in? Sure, careers, um, families. Finances, yeah, which tie in with that. So do I have the, the spouse, the, the children, the family, the job, the money? And that's what they put their hope in, that someday when I get that, then 
then I'll really enjoy life and then I'll have joy and peace and things will go well. That's what hope is so often built on in today's world by so many people. And those aren't bad things. But if that's what your hope is, if you define hope to be that, what's going to happen to your hope? You're going to lose it. It'll always be in front of you. You'll never quite attain the joy you're seeking. And eventually it'll all be gone. And it'll fail you. There'll be so much anxiety in your life too because you're always worried that it'll disappear. Yeah. What if I lose my, my home, my money, my spouse, my health, my life? So we're going <clears> to <throat> read the next section here, verses 3 to 5, where Peter contrasts our living hope with what we would probably be able to title the dead hope of this world, or the dying hope. So I'm going to read verses 3 to 5. Notice once again the persons of the Trinity are distinguished here. Praise be to God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy... He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. So there's a lot packed in there. I thought <clears throat> one way to break down our living hope is this chart. We're going to compare and contrast what Peter describes our living hope <clears throat> with other dead hope. So first of all, looking at those verses once again, how is our living hope received? Yeah, in his great mercy, and it's given by God our Father, right? He has given us new birth. So it's received as we're born again. And that birth is given to us. Uh, you don't give yourself your first birth, right? It's given to you. God gave you life. Same thing with this spiritual life. God gives you the new spiritual rebirth. And it's given because of his mercy. I might put that under why, right? So how is it received? It's given by God through a, a new birth, a new life. And it's why is it received? Because of his great mercy, God gave it. Contrast that to other dead hope. How do we get the, the dead hope of this world? Lies. <laughs> Sometimes through honest hard work. <clears throat> yeah, but otherwise, yeah, our own striving, I guess we have to say, whether it's honest or dishonest, we have to earn it. And why is it received? either because you were fortunate enough to play the stock market or because you were fortunate enough to get a good enough education to be born into a wealthy family or you worked hard enough or the markets were in your favor, whatever it might be. It depends on your situation. Okay, what's it based upon? Yeah, a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So the, the hope that we have is based off of the fact that Jesus rose to life. That's the basis for what we look forward to. If Jesus is alive, we have something good to look forward to in the future that is ours, and we hope for it. It's a living hope just as our Savior lives. What is the dead hope of this world based on? 
lies, fiction, uh, what we typically think of with the word hope as an I hope it might happen, an uncertainty. Whereas the certainty of the resurrection is our faith founded on something real that happened in history. As sure as Jesus lives, I know I will live. As sure as Jesus is ascended into heaven as our living Savior, he has a place prepared for me and I have an inheritance. But all the other stuff, it's uncertain. Uh, if some of you have investments, you've probably noticed how the uncertain that can be. Uh, one world event and a couple other world events and suddenly the world is turned upside down. Okay, and now let's look at the three outstanding characteristics of our living hope, which is, it's actually called an inheritance, right? It's based on the resurrection of Jesus, but it means we have an inheritance. And that, Peter, is tying in with scriptural language of spiritual truths. If we've been born into God's family, he said a new birth, that new birth into God's family has an inheritance for you. And that right there is a neat hope. It's not something you have to earn. It's, it's a gift given to us. And just as we've been born again, we, we receive an inheritance because uh, we're part of the family. Okay, yeah, so the characteristics of our inheritance are, well, one, it can never, you said, spoil or fade, never perish. Yeah, I like what the EHV does here. They put an un, which matches kind of the, <clears throat> the Greek. The Greek has the, the negative in front of each word describing it. So, Pat, can you share what the EHV has? Is that what you have there, or is that the CSB? Uh, it's uh, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. So imperishable, undefiable, and unfading. EHV says undying, undefiled, unfading. So undying, undefiled, unfading. I like that version because it, it just gets that un right in the front. Yeah. Your inheritance is not at the, the title company downtown and you know has the possibility of burning up with all the records. God has it. He's got your name written in his book in heaven. He's got the, the place set aside for you. It's secure. Or <clears throat> unfortunately, as, as I just saw on the, the news clip this morning, the, the wells in strawberry and pine are running dry. And there are people that have property but can't build because they, they just don't have any water that they can reach to build on their property in the pine area. Even if you have a house, how can you sell it if there's no water? So <laughs> here's an inheritance or a place that you thought you could retire in and have. It, it seems so secure, but suddenly, I don't know, which, which is those uns is it? Undying, unfading, unperishable? It's fading, right? You can't get the water. And pretty soon the, the value has, has gone down, it's dead. Or if one of the fires that's come so close to pine comes, it's definitely perished. So, yeah, our inheritance in heaven and our inheritance that we, we now possess as children of God will never fail, never end, never fade. How is it secured? So our living hope, how is it secured? Yeah. So it says here, an inheritance kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. So who's shielding us in his power? Yeah. Secured by Christ. He, he is the one who perseveres, strengthens, 
encourages, protects believers in the true faith. Not us, so it's secured by our God. We can, we can abandon this inheritance and reject it, but if we're secure, it's because of God. We're shielded by his power. The devil can't say, I'm going to pull that inheritance away from you. As we saw in our, our, our Sunday uh, text from John 10, you, the devil can't snatch us away from this inheritance and our good shepherd. How's other, <clears throat> how's other dead hope secured? Oh, you had a comment about our security? just helps me a whole lot thinking of all the tribulations that can come in these end times. Right. It just helps a whole lot. And Peter's going to get into that, that they're facing all sorts of trials. Well, right now, your hope is secure. It doesn't matter what happens to you. God has shielded you. Your inheritance is kept in heaven. It's all safe. Uh, the, The most secure... I can't say institution, but the most secure way that it can can be. Okay, how, how is our dead hope secured? Yeah, the, the only thing that makes the United States dollar any value is that our nation has order, laws and order. But once those start to crumble, the dollar crumbles. Because then you can, you know, let's let's seize these assets and close this bank and some ruler can start to do something and so as long as our nation stands, your, your deposits are secure, but only, only to an extent because what the, the stuff you have in the bank is federally insured to a certain amount, like 100000 or something. I don't, I'm not sure what it is, depending on which system you're using for your banking. But even then, that's not secure. Okay, and when is it realized? So remember, hope is looking forward to what you are going to receive in the future. That's how we're defining hope. When do we realize, when do we receive the full benefit of that hope? Yeah, verse, uh, yeah, it says here, verse 5, ready to be revealed in the last time or the end of time. So when this world is destroyed, Peter's going to get into that in his second letter especially, but when all the elements are destroyed by fire, there appearing will be the new creation and your secure hope. You'll see it. When is the dead hope realized? It's immediate gratification, but it won't stand and it won't last. So you might see, oh, I've got this before me, but it's a false hope. Okay. Other thoughts on that section? There's a lot in there, uh, but I want to kind of meditate on, on those thoughts of what we have Something that is our living hope. Some people focus and see so much, and I would too, that Peter talks about the word hope, that that's their theme for the study, uh, that it's all about the hope that we have as we endure trials. I have a similar theme. Uh, The hope is what gets us from cross to crown and carries us through and strengthens us. All right, um, turning the page to page four, we are looking at joy and suffering. There on the top of page four, there are no happy endings. Endings are the saddest part. So just give me a happy middle and a very happy start. That's from Shel Silverstein. He's an American writer. 
What problem is he getting at with that quote? Certainly, yeah, it's certainly not a, a Christian sentiment. It, it's focused on this life. And if your focus is on this life, there's no happy endings. It's kind of sad. So I just want a good middle or a good start because it's not going to end well. Why do people feel things are never going to end well? Yeah, there can't be a happy ending until you solve the problem of death. It's always going to be sad. So... He's really getting at the curse of sin and as the scriptures call the shroud that enfolds all people, the, the blanket of death. It, for, it overshadows every prosperous event in every moment. So really, if, if there's any joy in this life, it's going to eventually be robbed. Uh, sin is, is our struggle. Death is our curse. Let's read 1 Peter 1, 6-9. In all this... You greatly rejoice, though now, for a little while, you have had, may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. And actually, um, I'm going to save verse 8. Yeah, we'll stop there at verse 7. So Peter knows more than dead hope. He knows that our living hope is in our living Savior. That's what we just looked at. What does that mean for the start, middle, and ending of our lives? He's our shepherd. We have a shepherd, sure. We'll talk about that in chapter five. Yep. It doesn't mean it's going to be good for us. What we consider good. Okay. Yeah. If if your your good is thinking you'll be free of trials, God never promises that, right? He promises a good outcome. But what does He call the the present time of suffering? Peter says you you for a little while have had to suffer, right? If we have a, a living hope, what is this life? It's just a short, short while. We're going to live forever. Yeah. But it's more than just suffering. It's we're being refined. So it's a process that, in the end, is a good process. Okay. So the the trials, as he calls them, various to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. He says why they've come. He says they have come so the genuineness of your faith might be proven and result in praise to God. So when we suffer, one, it's only a brief blip on the, the picture of eternity that we're facing these crosses and these challenges. And during it all, what's our attitude going to be then? If we know... Thank you, Jesus, for helping us through this. Right. We, we turn to God in suffering, and we know suffering has a purpose, not just God is angry at us or... We're just facing a prelude to the suffering and death and punishment of sin. We're freed from that. So the, the start, middle, and ending of our lives is going to have suffering. 
But it's a little while. And through it all, uh, our faith carries us through. We know what is coming. We have a living hope. I think maybe Christians are the only ones who can say with certainty that my story ends well. Like, no matter what happens, they know that their story ends well. Yeah, so doesn't that help you in suffering? It may not be feeling like it's going well right now, but unlike um, Silverstein, we can say there is a happy ending. No matter what, if you have a bad start, a good start, a bad middle, a good middle, there's going to be a happy ending. And doesn't the fact that there's a happy ending carry in faith, doesn't that carry you through all those various kinds of trials? To know there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, God never promises that life is going to be easy. He, in fact, says you must take up your cross. He never says you're going to have success and pleasures throughout your life, but he does say, I have a place for you. And you will, I will come, I'll take you back that you may be with me. And he is living, and he says we have peace with our God. We're not being punished for our sin when we face those trials. It's, it's merely showing uh, our faith is genuine. It's not a, an artificial faith. Yeah, so imagine you have a, a Christian friend facing a great challenge, and they say that challenge has sucked all the joy out of life. What would you share to help carry them through their trials? But it ends well. <laughs> it ends well. <laughs> sure. If, if they're a Christian, obviously you want to empathize. What you're facing is bad. This is not good. Can't under, you know, understand how awful that must feel to face that. But take your eyes off the moment and look at, look at the goal. Look at the outcome. Heaven, sure. The new creation. Free from sorrow. Uh, that, that picture we had in Revelation of God wiping every tear from your eyes. We have to keep that before us. Uh, we, we can't lose sight of that. Well, I was really struck because Jeff and I have been, as part of our devotions, reading because we're studying this, we're going through First Peter day after day, and then when we finish First Peter, we go back to the first chapter again and start over to find what we missed. One thing that struck me here is... Um, you know, it's talking about us a lot, but that last phrase in verse 7 basically says, okay, you go through all these things, and, you know, you, it's for your benefit, your your faith and, and the character of your the proven character of your faith is, is happening. Okay, great. But what, for what purpose? No, it says so, we can so that we can praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. He is the center always. Right. And, and we are, well, his sidekicks, you know, for lack of a nicer phrase. Witnesses often is used, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. All right, I was raised with a brother's home. <laughs> um, so... So, in the end, we benefit tremendously from his grace, from his mercy, from the trials that he walks with us through, that, and he purifies us, and he cleanses us, and the end result is, at the appearing of Jesus, we'll be able to praise and glorify yeah, and this this does bring us to that day. You know, when he says when Christ is revealed, Peter just mentioned 
the, the revelation of God on Judgment Day and the new creation, he just mentioned that. Now he wants you to keep your eyes on that to carry you through today and the, the little trial, little while trials you're suffering. And that's why he mentions gold is destroyed by fire. Because we know you, you can't really destroy elements. Um, but what will happen on Judgment Day? I referenced there in your notes, look at 2 Peter 3.10. Yeah, the elements will be destroyed by fire, including precious things like gold. But your faith, that will stand the fires of Judgment Day. That will be proven real. As people say, look at them. They endured those trials and they still praise their God. Um, that's why the, the next study I have is, what about Job? Why did Job suffer? Wasn't it so that God could put him on display to the devil and all of his enemies and say, see, his faith is real. And the devil goes, well, he just loves you, God, because you're blessing him with prosperity and, and wealth. Take away that and he won't love you anymore. So God says, fine, go ahead, test him. He does, and Job still praises God, even when all that stuff is taken away. And Job, when you get to chapter 19, says, even if my flesh is destroyed, he's got a living hope. I know my Redeemer lives, and I'll see him, and I'll, he'll stand on the earth, and my own eyes will see him. So Job had a, a living hope in the resurrection and a living Savior, and gave glory to God, even through all that, to, to prove, not that Job had to prove anything, but it, it proved glory to God, that he trusted in him. Um, talking with a friend, recently about a friend of theirs who died very recently and this friend suffered for a long time with a lot of health issues um, and she was saying that this friend's family um, was not Christian and would often ridicule her for her Christian faith and she very strongly felt that if her life had been easy and she hadn't suffered with all of these health struggles that her family would have been able to pull her away from her Christian faith because it would have been easy. But because God took away everything, her health, so she just had nothing but God to, to lean on, that that is what kept her so strong in the faith until she died. So I just wonder, when we get to heaven, we'll be able to look back at all the difficult things in our life that we had to endure and be able to thank God for those, that he sent those hardships. Right. That strengthened our faith and, and kept us in the faith. Right. So that kind of, thanks for sharing. That That's not an uncommon story. And that brings us full circle. When, when you are surrounded by the dead hope of this world, it's easy to lose sight of, of the living hope. And God sometimes has his believers give a testimony to this world that they're not relying on the dead hope because he takes it away from them. Right, so don't put your trust, um, as the Apostle Paul warns, don't put your trust in riches. It's not bad to have riches, but they can become a false security. So Job is a prime example of this. I'm not sure if Peter was thinking of Job, but Job's faith was tested, and it proved in giving glory to God. Uh, same thing he says for you, as, as you suffer various kinds of trials, Look at what's going to happen on Judgment Day. Uh, you don't see it now, but then it will be revealed how God gets glory in the end. So, yeah, Peter says one end result of our various kinds of trials is giving glory to God. Uh, praise and honor. And I kind of have a, a foot or a side note there. Who gets the praise, glory, and honor? Because Peter just says, 
your faith will result in praise. Uh, what's, what verse is this here? Verse 7, that your faith's proven genuineness will result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Praise, glory, and honor for who? For you? Because you, you proved that you were faithful? Or rather, praise, glory, and honor that God was trustworthy. So I have a, on our footnote on the side there, who gets the praise, glory, and honor? Is it for believers? Do they get praised on Judgment Day? Is it for God alone? Or is it both God and his people? There is a couple verses listed there. We're not going to have time today to look at that, but you'll see, look in Peter's letter. His focus is on un, giving glory to God as you endure suffering. God gets the glory. But also, in Matthew 5, 11 through 12, as you suffer, you give glory to God, and yet God will commend you. And yet we're still in Revelation 4. It says, well, we're going to lay our crowns at his feet. So whatever praise we get as believers for all eternity because we endured, because we trusted God, we're going to give that right back to God right away because he gets the praise, not us. So even though it's somewhat ambiguous, someone could misread that and say, I'm going to endure these trials so I get praise and glory and honor. You've lost the focus. Peter's focus is on glory to God. And why would you want to give him the glory? Look at verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father, his great mercy, the new birth, the inheritance, the living hope. Give him the glory. All right, um, the next point there. Peter was an eyewitness of Christ, but he knew Jesus' promise for everyone else. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. We read in John 20, 29. Let's read verses 8 and 9. It says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So I, I wanted to talk about those two verses right there. Can you describe the essence of Christian faith? And one of its fruits, just based off what Peter says about us not seeing God there. Yeah. Believing the promise. Sure. Everybody in the Old Testament were faithful Christians who believed in the promise. Well, I came from it. So forth. Yeah, and the, the promise isn't yet fulfilled, right? When you talk about men like Abraham, he had a promise, but he didn't have it yet, but he had faith. God is faithful, the trusting God's word. So yeah, faith is trusting the promises of God even though we don't yet see it. That's why it's called faith. If God said, okay, trust me, and you're like, okay, show me God, then I'll believe it. That's not faith. But faith is God having promised something to us which we don't yet fully have, and yet we trust him. That's the essence of faith. That's why Peter says, you have not seen him, and you love him, so you trust He's your God. Even though you do not see him now, you believe in him. So faith is not, oh, I'll believe Jesus when I see him. Faith is Jesus spoke. His word is trustworthy. I believe him. Or as the writer to Hebrews says, right, it's being certain of what we do not see and have. Okay, so if that's the essence of faith, trusting in a, a promise of God that we've not yet fully attained, but he's promised, what is one of the fruits of faith? Sharing. Okay, certainly one of the fruits of faith will be 
being a witness. Uh, Peter is going to talk about that, you know, sharing the hope that we have. But look at uh, verse 8. What do you see in there is a, a fruit of having this faith in the unseen God with his unseen yet promises. Yeah, so yeah, a deep joy is a good way to describe it. It says an inexpressible and glorious joy, being filled with it. So faith, trusting in these things we don't yet see, but God says we have and will be given to us, fills us with an inexpressible and glorious joy. That's one of the fruits of faith, joy. And yeah, one of the results, Peter says, you're receiving the salvation of your souls. Uh, as you carry your crosses and endure these trials, you're still headed, according to God's foreknowledge, to what you're destined for, his glorious inheritance. So much in here. But I just wanted to make sure we didn't overlook those verses, uh, the essence of faith that Peter describes. He's going to get into the, the basis of our faith next. Um, searching prophets and lawning angels is what I titled the next section. So do we have time to finish this section? Um, choir is going to be coming and starting up in a, about five minutes. So um, I don't want to miss out on this, so we can maybe squeeze this in at the start next time, right? We'll just get an early start. Everybody come 10 minutes early and... Um, if you look at the uh, the study outline, I'm, I'm shooting for 10 parts on this study. And we're going to go into Second Peter immediately after this. And it's going to kind of tail along with our summer sermon series. And that's why I'm trying to keep us on pace. We can, we can go into discussions, but we're going to keep doing each part of Peter's letter each day just so that we can keep pace with that, that sermon study. And just to kind of change it up a little bit. Normally our, our midweek study, we kind of go at whatever pace we want to cover for that day. And sometimes it's just one verse. Sometimes it's just getting ready to read a verse. But just to try something different, we're going we're gonna to see if, how far we get in each section each time. And then if we have something left over like this, where you got one section left over, we'll cover it. But we won't spend as much time because we'll be focusing on the next section. So that kind of tells you what to prepare to focus on, what we'll be studying and so forth. If you look at the side notes on uh, the first page, uh, we didn't cover that last time, so just in brief, uh, Peter calls himself the apostle, the elder, the shepherd, the overseer, and it's uncontested that Peter wrote this, this letter. I mentioned how Silas helped him write it, so that clarifies some of the understanding of the, the, the language that's used and the, the grammar. The place and date of writing, uh, it's pretty well established. Um, if you look at, he, he talks about he who was in, in Babylon, which was a euphemism for Rome. So Peter, though he didn't spend that much time in Rome, wrote this letter near the end of his ministry from Rome. And you have testimony to it by Clement of Rome. And you've got, uh, he was someone that lived around uh, the, the second century. So early testimony, even someone like uh, um, Papias, 125 AD. So he... He's someone that could have even known firsthand, you know, the, the works of the Apostle John. But Peter was killed by Nero, so just mentioning there, that's, that's how we established a date for this letter. I don't think we mentioned that last time. The audience to the letter I have on the next footnote, it appears he's not just writing to the scattered Jews, he's writing to the Gentiles. As you look, they were people that were once not a people. They once worshipped pagan idols. So when you read this letter, picture he's talking to 
first-generation converts from, from pagan gods to the truth, but also some of the Jews with the, the synagogue centers that had been reached. And, and then you might argue, well, isn't this Paul's area? If you look at Galatians, Paul says, I was the missionary to the Gentiles. Peter, it determined, would reach the Jews. So what's Peter doing? Is he, is he taking over for Paul? So the, the questions I had there, is Paul in prison? Well, that doesn't make sense because Paul wrote from prison, right? He's, he doesn't need to write a letter when Paul's writing from prison. Uh, has Paul died? But it seems Paul and Peter probably died at the same time, so that doesn't stand. What makes the most sense is Paul has gone on his mission trip to Spain, which we know Paul had planned when he wrote to the Romans. Uh, so Paul, going through Rome, probably even then at that point, talked to Peter Say, hey, Peter, can you encourage these guys while I'm gone? I'm going off to Spain. Uh, so we have what, what makes sense there. And the most sense is sometime after 63 and before he died in 68, during Paul's time in Spain, uh, that Peter would be writing to the Gentile churches. And a, further adding to that is the fact that Silas attaches his name to this letter. Silas would have been well known by those churches as Paul first established those churches with Silas as a companion. So that, that seems to fit best. And then... Um, when Peter says, hey, guys, you can endure these sufferings and have rejoicing and suffering, I had a little note there, easier said than done, right? Rejoice and suffering. Remember what Peter did in Acts 5? He's flogged and threatened and everything for sharing the gospel. And what did they do when they're released? They rejoiced for being counted worthy of bearing the name. So Peter practiced what he preached. I thought that was worth noting uh, to see that. And then... We'll look at the next footnotes as we get with the the sufferings and glory that followed. Uh, the scattered elect, uh, I, I mentioned on the footnotes there, the various first and second century people that quote Peter's letter, and you can see the references to when Peter's quoted. So this was widespread in the early church, this letter, and well known. Just something worth noting, but it wasn't going to be the focus of our study, but just a little extra, you know, if this is the, the buffet, that's kind of like the a little side garnish and stuff, just to spice up the meal a little bit to get some understanding. If we have time, we'll dig into those more, but often it's just going to be there for your reference. All right, uh, let, why don't we say a prayer about what we studied today as we look through uh, the, the first portion of Peter's letter. Lord, we see how often and continually throughout history your people have been scattered in this world. Help us to recognize, as we are titled by Peter, Sojourners, strangers, scattered, and yet, by God's working and his foreknowledge and plan, we are his chosen people, sanctified by the work of the Spirit, brought to faith, cleansed by the blood of your Son. Help us to endure the time of sojourning and our trials and our griefs as we remember our living hope, which is a faith founded in the resurrection of your Son. Let this living hope fill us with joy in all kinds of trials until your glory is revealed on the last day and praise, honor, and glory are given to our God. We thank you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for this rich inheritance. Keep us in your care and keep us secure by your power. Amen. Amen. Thank you. That was Thanks for coming, everyone. We'll pick it up where we left off next time. And thanks for joining us. If you made it this far through the audio, you're, you're commended by the, the whole group of people here. Thanks for joining us. We'll talk to you next time. <laughs>